0: Welcome to When Pigs Fly. We're uncovering Cincinnati's rich business history from the 1800s to today. We talk to companies to learn the ups and downs of entrepreneurship, what it takes to grow a successful business, and to simply pros to future innovation. I'm your co-host, Patrick Bailey.
1: And I'm your other co-host, Allie Martin.
0: And today, we are talking with Mohsen of Acru And Accrue, formerly tokenism, is a way that Average Joe's like you and I, Allie, can invest and own fractional pieces of commercial real estate, and it's all based on blockchain technology.
1: It's so funny because it's like I can see the the wheels turning in your head when you're trying to describe it because it really is such a foreign concept, right?
0: It is. It's very brand new uh, technology. It was only founded Mm -hmm. 10 years ago by... What society thinks is a group of people using the pseudonym Satoshi Nakamoto, and it was really the bedrock for Bitcoin. So the cryptocurrency yeah. that is just going crazy right now, in, the, in you know the world of finance, yeah. it was you know based off this blockchain technology, which is technically just really a digital ledger system to record transactions. People can't make changes to it. So that's the benefit to it. And so that's probably the reason why Mohsen and his team decided, let's go ahead and allow for people to make investments and fractional Mm -hmm. ownership of commercial real estate properties using blockchain technology. and you know we were trying to find a history fact other for specifically linked to Cincinnati but <laughs> uh, it's such a it's such a new technology that you know there isn't really much of a history fact <laughs> related to Cincinnati no
1: but that's a, i mean that's a huge point to make though because when we're talking about blockchain you know i have a basic i personally have a basic knowledge of it patrick you might have more And I'm sure I'm not the only one who just has also a lot of basic questions as to explain how it works. And then what's going to be really interesting is seeing how it is going to be applied in an industry that is typically not been talked about and understanding from his experience where he's seen certain problems in the real estate industry and how he's able to use this technology to hopefully solve them and open up the playing field for almost anyone, ideally, to invest in the real estate world because then that's growing individual asset, which mm-hmm. ideally we're all hopefully having the opportunity to do that. Or hopefully we all have the opportunity to do that.
0: Definitely. Definitely. And so I'm super excited to dive into this further with him. So let's bring him in.
1: Let's do it. I'm very excited to Learn more about this, the blockchain, and how this works and integrates with real estate. Because obviously, that's a very hot button conversation right now. You know, inventory is low, and this is very foreign to me. So, bear <laughs> with me if I ask you very basic questions, because I please. know I can't be the only one thinking it.
2: <laughs> no, no, please feel free. Ask as many questions as you guys want. The more questions, yeah. the easier it gets for me to explain it as well, right? What What is a crew? Sure. So, a crucial platform for fractionalized real estate investments. They, you know, talking about the background on it, the entire thought process behind it was that commercial real estate investment needs to be democratized. It is a segment that is dominated by one very specific group of people that own more than 95%. Of this commercial real estate, whether they own and manage it directly or through larger corporations or entities and stuff. So, my background is in real estate. So, I grew up in a real estate family. I manage a relatively large uh, family office of real estate investments across the world Asia, Africa, Europe, expanded it into North America, so expanded into Toronto. New York, Boston, Arizona, Nevada, and California as well. So we were focused on like, uh, I used to live in LA before I moved to Cincinnati. And we focused on investing in LA, Scottsdale, and Reno uh, across the West Coast as well. 2014, I ended up moving to Cincinnati and I started my own PE fund and I was doing real estate investments. And that's, that's all that I did, right? So I'm not a tech guy. I'm not a blockchain guy. I'm a real estate guy and i started to raise money on my own syndicate deals with minimum investments of about 250k per investor which a lot of times was a big issue right so not uh, not mm-hmm. some of my favorite investors could not invest in all the deals all the times so it, it, I always wanted to resolve for hey how do we get get to lower the barrier on that entry how do we bring that 250k down to 100k 50k maybe even lower and you know th- there's other inherent issues with real estate like redemptions when you're raising capital like if you're an investor you need to cash out I as a project developer will have to charge you massive fees and your 100k will now only you'll get 50k if you're leaving in the middle of the project kind of deal and even giving that 50k out to you is very painful for me as a developer so in 2018 a friend of mine sat me down and told me all about blockchain and he explained to me what blockchain was so not blockchain as in cryptocurrencies but blockchain as the immutable ledger you know which uses markel trees and uh, hash functions and cryptographic keys to put everything together in an immutable manner in different nodes and different blocks and i'm trying to oversimplify it basically
0: ali and i can just put in a little bit we don't need that much money but we can get start getting involved with
2: commercial real estate is the point correct that's absolutely correct okay. yeah okay. so okay. Uh, we what we do is we fractionalize each asset so you're not investing in a fund uh, you're investing in every specific asset. So you pick building A in on Main Street, Cincinnati, versus building B, which is on 3rd Street in New York, versus mm-hmm. building D, which is on Melrose Street in LA. So you pick and choose whichever building you want to invest in. Mm-hmm. Uh, you pick and choose how much you want to invest in. So starting at, uh, with as low as 1000 bucks is what our minimum investment is and what each token is initially offered at. It makes it super simple for people to invest on the platform, and it it make, it brings it really lowers that barrier down, and it gives you the ability to choose which real estate asset you want to invest in, whether you want to invest in an apartment building or you want to invest in a. Hotel uh, or an industrial complex or, or so on.
0: So we oh uh, will use a hot button uh, term, right? You know, uh, NFTs, right? It's basically yeah. the same thing right. as blockchain. You're d- you're doing the NFTs of real estate. <laughs>
2: uh,
0: well, uh, so
1: <laughs> he's like, no, <laughs> no, 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 no,
0: don't
2: put category. We take that back. We
1: take it back. We take it back.
2: no, no, I'll give you my opinion on on NFTs. NFTs are a fad, in my opinion. There are some. Really, really good use cases of NFTs. There are some important use cases of NFTs, and NFTs have been be, have been being utilized for the last couple of years. It's or last three years at least that I know. Of, right, it's not something as new as you you, you start to believe and how it started to come up in the news over the last three or four months. I, I made a comment at a conference. Uh, end of March, uh, are you know, I think NFTs are a fad. Next day, Bloomberg had an article with the headline, are NFTs a fad? So yeah, I feel like I, you know, you know, top
1: of the feed. Yeah. yeah.
2: My perspective on that is like NFTs definitely have a specific use case for royalty fees, right? NFTs have a use case for authentication of art. NFTs are creating access to a larger market for digital art, but
0: can you relate that back to, I guess, for our audience, blockchain, like what's the relationship there um, yep. for especially our audience that, you know, probably is not like me. <laughs>
2: right and, and I, I'll get into the difference between uh what an nFT versus uh, what a regular token is as well and then nFTs have a use case in real estate as well and are being used in use case we're using it as a separate product not as this product uh, there's other companies like Proppy that are using it which are like industry leaders in, in blockchain and real estate space uh, their CEO is like my mentor uh, in different ways but what is the difference between an nFT and a regular token uh NFT is a non-fungible token and a regular token or a fungible token. Uh, the difference is uh, NFT will always represent a specific piece or a, uh, of artwork or title, or it's it's a non-changeable, non-interchangeable token. It's a unique token that that represents a one-off. any item. It's a one-off, exactly. Uh, whereas a fungible token is an interchangeable token. So if there's a series of tokens, like let's say there's the series A token 1 to 1,000, Token one has the exact same qualities and the value as token one thousand does within that series because they're fungible, they're interchangeable tokens. Mm. Um, so that's the difference between non-fungible and fungible tokens. So it's the same thing as if you were to uh, now if, if you were to put the title of a property okay. and you were to tokenize it, that you that you could create an NFT with and say, hey, this NFT represents the title for. This specific property only, but you know, you you uh, that token would never represent any other property within that area or within that land registry, right? That's where NFT use cases ha- start happening in in the real estate world.
1: Wow! So how how does what you do with these tokens? How does it logistically intertwine with the current system that we have?
2: So it, it's like running two parallel systems in in certain ways, right? So we have to. Work on the existing system, so we have to get an asset, put it under an SPV or a brand new company. Uh, mm-hmm. Oversimplifying it, right? And when so, you
1: say an asset, you're saying like, "Hey, we're purchasing a building."
2: Yeah, so we're not purchasing a building. Let's say Patrick owns one Main Street downtown or the Great American Tower downtown, right? And Patrick wants to uh, comes to us and says, "Hey, I want to tokenize this, and I want to sell twenty percent of this." That's the benefit of tokenization. Oh, right? so he so would he, come
1: to you, okay?
2: Right. So he would come to us and is like, hey, we want to tokenize this asset. And we're like, okay, let's do the due diligence on it. We we believe it's worth one million dollars, just for yeah. ease of calculation, right? I mean, yeah, one million dollars is one. What, what, we'll great American, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so we we break it up into thousand dollar tokens, <laughs> yeah. Which means that there's one thousand tokens uh, representing the entire building. Out of those one thousand tokens, we can go ahead and we can sell those on our platform. But in mm-hmm. order to to get to that, we would ask Patrick to transfer over the asset into a new company. And the tokens represents the represent the shareholding within that new company, so it's like you're buying shares of mm-hmm. a new uh, of a publicly traded company, and that publicly traded company is what holds just one asset, which is that Great American uh, building that Patrick might have. So uh, what you're getting is the economic interest by buying a token or buying a share within that building you're getting the right to the economic interest within that asset mm-hmm. and that is the only way to do it right now unfortunately mm. none of your uh, none of the land registries or your county auditors or or, uh, or uh, recorders have moved over onto blockchain right so until and unless all county auditors and all Land registries across the U.S. move over on the blockchain and every title is represented on the blockchain. We can't actually tokenize the title of the asset.
1: And when do you think these county auditors and if ever, when do you think that that change would happen and is it happening and what would it take? I know that's an extremely loaded question.
2: You know, people have been making efforts to make it happen. Counties have been making the efforts to, to make it happen. Ohio is one of the first few to give that a shot. We're actually one of the more advanced uh, states when it comes to blockchain laws. 2019 and 2018, we, we put in legislation, so some of the most forward thinking blockchain uh, legislation from, uh, on a state level uh, oh, across wow. the US. Yeah, it was surprising, right? So that's one of the reasons why we decided to start up in Cincinnati and, and, and stay. In Ohio as well. But uh, Franklin County was the first county to test out uh, having their land registry on the blockchain. I forget the name of the Columbus based company for that. I-, I know it's not that easy to do. So we looked at it uh, from our perspective to start off with. It's just such a fragmented segment w- within the market. Every state has different law on who needs to record uh, your title work, whether it's a state or it's a county matter. And if it's county matter, then every state has, what, 50 plus counties or, or yeah. more in every jurisdiction. So multiply that by 50 states and then two more territories. And then you're yeah, looking you're at thousands of. Yeah, so it, it's going to happen. It's bound to happen. But when will it happen? It'll, it'll take time. I, I can't say.
0: Along the same lines. Why would someone, I guess, come to you then and want to tokenize their asset? Is that taking some convincing on your part and educating on your part? Or is this these people usually just, you know, early adopters and forward thinkers themselves?
2: Yeah, so there's a couple of things that that we need to look at, right? 99.9% of uh, investment properties uh, in the U.S. are owned in entities or in LLCs or corporations and things like that. And what does that mean? You don't own the title for it. The title is still held by, uh, by that corporation that, uh, and you just own the shares for it. So it takes educating people, 100%. And that's what our biggest uh, hurdle has been. And that's what our biggest, not even just hurdle, but our challenge is, and that's, that's what we're trying to do is we're trying to educate people on, hey, what, what, what does this do? And how does this help you? So from a building owner's perspective, it has some major benefits to it, right? When talking about large commercial real estate assets, the appraisals for those assets are brought down by a significant amount by this thing called the discount on marketability factor. And that is a major number utilized on there. A discount on marketability is a discount that's applied to the true value of the asset because it's not a tradable asset, like your shares on the stock exchange or, or your bonds or mutual assets. Now we've created a secondary market where you can actually buy, sell, and trade these tokens, which are backed by each asset. And and what that does is that reduces that discount on marketability. And what we like to call is creates a liquidity premium on each of those assets. So you can truly unlock the value of your assets by tokenizing them, that's one. You can retain control if you're an experienced developer or a corporation of the asset, and you can increase your revenues by fractionalizing part of these assets, you can move to a completely unlevered model and let each investor deal with leverage directly themselves. Like we've got a new product coming up with a local bank, uh, Ohio Bank, by the way, where, where we're going to be offering margin trading on the secu- backed by these security tokens. So traditionally, you would need to go through a very uh, tedious refi uh, process for every real estate project to buy out your investors or to get a large payment out to your investors at the end of the term. In this case, they can just refi out themselves and uh, everyone can take leverage directly. Each investor can decide if someone wants to take 50%, 40%, 20% or none whatsoever. Things like that is what's truly revolutionizing the space. And that, that's what, what's enabling liquidity within the space. And that's what's providing that liquidity premium. And at the end of it, that's what helps the asset owners for, from their perspective as well.
1: So, how are you? What does it take for you to acquire the assets that you need in order to operate?
2: Yeah. So, we've got 14. Assets that are uh, that are committed to the platform already. That's what we're using to start off with, and there's new ones coming on. Like there's people reaching out to us every week at this point. Initially, it, the idea was we would be setting up a relatively large sales team, you know, nationwide, but the headquartered out of Cincinnati. You know, going from two people to two hundred and fifteen in, in the next three years uh, on the sales team side. But by the looks of it, there's there's more people reaching out to us and and trying to tokenize their assets, uh, and it's going to be more about managing an internal team who can handle those uh, inbound calls and stuff. So yeah. So how are you
0: making money off it? Are you making money off the transaction or like fees for people wanting to put their assets on this platform? Like can you give us like the lowdown on the
2: revenue model? Yeah, so we're a combination. We're something like Robinhood or your Etrade account or any trading platform, we, we charge transactional fees. So every time there's a transaction that happens on the platform, uh, we charge a fee for that. And then we have to do like due diligence uh, on every asset that's going on uh, on the platform. We have to underwrite those assets as well, right? So imagine in the stock market world, we're not just the New York Stock Exchange, but we're also acting as the Maryland's and the Goldman Sachs where, where we're actually underwriting each of those deals. So we have to charge a little bit of an on- onboarding fee for every asset as well, where we do the on- uh, onboarding, underwriting, compliance, and all of that, and, the, and handle all the legalities of it. So, running a new IPO for every uh, real estate deal is is what we're doing and what we're charging for on the initial offering side.
1: And the real estate market, I think everyone could probably agree, has been pretty hot, hot, hot. Right? You know, but that might be the difference between residential and commercial. How Are you guys strictly commercial and how do you feel about commercial space moving forward post-pandemic? Because you hear a lot of companies saying, whether we believe it or not, we're not really sure, give us a, a, you know another six months to a year. You could potentially be working from home for the rest of your life. Do we buy it? And is this whole change post-pandemic going to change the commercial space?
2: Yeah, so you could potentially be working from home uh, for the rest of your life. Pre-pandemic, we have a global team. We've been working remotely that had nothing to do yeah. with COVID. Actually, post-COVID, we ended up consolidating, setting up a central office, and getting everyone in one city at least, if if not, still working from home. But yeah. it's been a little bit of a different journey for us. But from from the perspective of commercial real estate, what we yeah. we do focus on commercial real estate, and what that means is apartment buildings, mixed-use buildings, mm-hmm. your retail That's centers. So you've got to go to the grocery store. You're still going mm-hmm. to order take-in. Uh, you know, you, you're going to need those. Restaurants out there. You need to go buy clothes. It's not like you're gonna have that one Zoom shirt for the rest of the year, and that that's gonna work for you. <laughs> hey, no, no. So, Talk uh, to my dad. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it, you know, it, it's a. Like- commercial real estate will survive and will do much better. And if anything, you, you're going to have added value uh, products to it, like last mile warehousing, like warehousing in general, like industrial mm-hmm. in general, and each each different aspect would expand over the other. So I, I don't see a bleak future for commercial real estate in any or form. And from our perspective, yeah, we don't affect the housing market directly as much, but mm-hmm. but we do provide, like we have, we're working with a few not-for-profits for providing affordable housing in certain cities. So big yeah. issue for a city like Cincinnati can easily be tackled. You know, we're working with a specific city in tokenizing a park. And like, we'd love to work for instance with the city of Cincinnati. There is so many dilapidated parks, right? So people yeah. want to invest within their neighborhoods. They don't have to, it, it doesn't have to be an investment for a return. It can be an investment for an investment in your in your neighborhood, nice. in your community. Oh, yeah. yeah, exactly. Similarly, there's apartment buildings, right? So you, if you live in, in an apartment building downtown, let's assume the 540 building or something like that, you could possibly own a part of it. So if that gets tokenized, you, you're not just paying down rent to some large corporation every, every month. You're yeah. getting a piece of that rent a, at the end of the month as well, or at the end of the quarter That's as well. That's
1: so appealing to segment yeah. it off because I'm not going to come in and buy a million dollar building, but if I can yep. own a piece of it, Count me ex- in.
2: Right. Like, right, exactly. So that land ownership aspect gets, mm. you know, as housing becomes more and more and more expensive, mm-hmm. uh, it, it becomes a further out dream. And then, real estate is truly a generational wealth building uh, mm-hmm. product, if not the only generational wealth building tool for people out there. Uh, and as uh, residential real estate becomes more and more expensive and more out of reach for the common mm-hmm. person, we, you know, that's that's kind of where democratizing real estate uh, investment the whole idea came into being for us. It's like, you've got to be able to say, hey, I own a piece of... This building, or this this project, or or, or this uh, tower, or this warehouse, and this is what my real estate investing uh, bit is. Like we've tried to kind of what what we do is we use blockchain as the underlying technology, right? So mm-hmm. it's not an in-your-face uh, thing. It's not like if you lose your private key, you're you're gonna forever lose your Bitcoin kind of deal, or you're gonna yeah. forever lose your real estate uh, investment. The way that we have the impl- implementation is, if someone passes away, wealth needs to be transferred on. So we can, as long as there's the legal paperwork for it, as long as there's appropriate backing for it, and we have a very secure process of doing it, we can transfer it over to the heirs of the current property owner or the token holders and stuff like that. Or if if something happens to me, for let's let's say for instance, and I die today, there are processes in place where. My heirs would, would automatically get those tokens transferred over to them. So if I have a transfer in debt, as I would for a lot of the other assets uh, that I would own, and you know, whether it gets transferred over into a trust or directly into their names, all of that is possible. And then people can invest, like they can set up a joint account on, on our platforms, like but when a husband and wife, parents and their kids and stuff like that, and set up their kids' savings through real estate investment, all all, all through a single dashboard on our platform
0: are you going to allow
2: businesses to set up accounts too? Yeah. So real estate investment usually happens through entities, right? So I own a few pieces of property. I don't own a single one of them in in my name, not even my primary residence. So that's my thought process on it. But a lot of people like to invest in real estate through entities. So yes, for sure. Currently, our platform is only open to accredited investors. What that means is you've got to ha- have a minimum uh, income of $250,000 a year or a net worth of a million dollars, and you know, you've know you got to be able to show that one way or the other, and there's four different ways of doing it. But it, you know this, this is a stepping stone in order to open it up to retail investors, in order to op- open it up to everyone, and we expect to open it up to retail by the middle of next year, hopefully.
0: So do the newer accredited investor, I guess, definitions, for example, if you work in that space, in the investor space, do those rules still apply to your definition of accredited investors or do you really want those hard
2: assets lined out? The SEC defines accredited investors as an individual who makes $250,000 a year or a household that makes $350,000 a year. Someone as an individual or as a household has a net worth of over a million dollars, without your uh, primary residence. If you have passed and you maintain your Series Seven and a couple of other licenses with the SEC, which are securities laws, and then you know you you can always get your CPA or your attorney to like write you a letter saying, hey, this person is a is an accredited investor. We know that they have a net worth or they, they meet one of the criterias for it. We need to verify this. This is not a self accreditation or self-certification process uh, like a lot of the other sites. We're a 100% compliant platform. We've been working with the SEC and FINRA and CFTC for the last three years on this, which is your Securities and Exchange Commission and FINRA is the, the financial I'm sorry, I, I always butcher it, but they're one of the regulatory uh, bodies and CFTC is your uh, commodities and trade commission. So all three of these regulators are, are the ones who who help us, you know, who regulate our space. And we, we have to absolutely ensure that we're on the right side of things because this is a brand new technology with not too many people getting into this and anyone else who's out there is it's the wild, wild west. Not everyone is remaining compliant and and everyone's trying to avoid compliance from that perspective. We're trying to remain compliant and work with the regulators. So we're we're being watched with a microscope and we have to make sure we do everything 100% right. And we don't mess anything up in order to jeopardize it, not just for ourselves, but the industry uh, uh, as a
1: whole. Do you think that'll play in your favor in the future?
2: course, gives us uh, first mover advantage, uh, w- w- which is a big plus. Uh, but uh, no, it also gives the investors the comfort and the peace of mind that, hey, their money is safe. They're not just putting their money yeah. in another technology project. It's or foreign. It, it, it is, right? So it's, it's a new concept. It's a brand new concept. There's companies out there that are not being compliant. Like they, We know of so many different companies that are just raising money and they claim it's through Reg CF and, and, and it's, tokenization and it's, it's it, if it's not done right, it's it's not. It can be a really really bad uh, implementation, having a bad outcomes for for the investors. So that's that's what the bad downside is, and we want to make sure that doesn't happen.
1: So you kind of said right now, and it's the foundation that ideally, if it's a first time um, investor, you need like two hundred fifty thousand dollars or the household number three hundred fifty thousand um, dollars, whatever that is. In the future, will it be more approachable? for those who might not make $250,000 annually or whatever that income looks like to be a part of this space and to invest? Or is it typically, is the bar still going to be that high?
2: No, so accredited investors is is where that $250,000 a year income threshold is there, right? Uh, and we're, we're targeting a very specific group even within that accredited investor, which is like people like the three of us over here right now, right? So we've got decent jobs. Uh, we make decent money. We're just about making that, that that amount of money but in the age group of 35 and 55, maybe mm-hmm. a, little, a little bit less, maybe a little bit more. But the reason for that age group is anyone who is below that and an accredited and investor is most probably had a major exit technology, innovation or something on those lines and have a large amount of money or are trust fund kids uh, yeah. and nothing against them, but they have enough money to to. Invest into commercial real estate directly, yeah. and not have to not have to need us. People over fifty-five either have enough connections directly with local developers to uh, and have enough access to local real estate transactions where they they're happy to invest directly, and they they won't need our services from that from that perspective. And they're okay with more importantly not having the liquidity within the real estate segment. People in thirty-five and fifty-five, people like me at least, need and want to invest in real estate want to have the option of liquidity as and when we need it. So yes, I'm investing in putting my savings in this real estate platform, but I want to be able to pull the money out if I need it in case of an emergency, just like I could with my stock portfolio or my capital market por- portfolio, right? That's that's the whole, whole point of, of putting money in Robinhood because I can pull it out when, whenever I absolutely need it uh, kind of deal. So adding that liquidity to it, not having the hassle of dealing with tenants. Like, what's the other option I have? I can go buy a four-family somewhere in town, and then I've got to deal with leasing it up. I've got to deal with the tenants, phone calls, maintenance, like deal with filing taxes and reporting and all of that. it's like, that becomes too much of a a hassle, right? So I'm not too prone on taking, you know, picking up on all of that hassle for, for that extra buck over there. So that's the people who our platform is set up for, at least for right now. Over the next year to a year and a half, we are working with SEC and FINRA and CFTC to open up the platform to everyone. That's why the mm. min- minimum investment is $1,000, right? It's not that this is meant for the accredited investors only. We want it to open up for everyone. We want everyone to have equal opportunity to invest yeah. in commercial real estate, You know, regardless of color, creed, you know, yeah. race. It should not matter. You know, less than... of commercial real estate is owned and managed by women, which is ridiculous, right? More than 95% is managed by men. That's just not right. So, you know, we need to democratize this space, not just from the perspective of capital distribution but but from you know regardless of your gender your orientation that should not matter on on if you and your family have the ability to build wealth over a longer period of time and save and you know that that's that's just not right so that financial access needs to be brought to everyone for sure
0: so, how has it been working with those regulatory bodies? You know, especially because there's other startups out there that maybe aren't really working in you know the finance regulation space, but you know maybe healthcare, or other government you know regulation bodies. How has it been? What kind of hurdles and what kind of tips?
2: The biggest challenge for us was finding the right legal counsel who could reach out to them uh, on our behalf and who would who would do the right research and not just. Reach out, but also fight our case appropriately with them. And we got very, very lucky. Uh, We're working with Arthur McMahon from Taft. Again, one of the largest regional uh, law firms based out of Cincinnati, major presence over here. Arthur is their leading securities attorney, uh, attorney. He's a senior partner there. He's a wealth of information. And his existing relationships and his knowledge really kind of helped us uh, throughout the whole process. Another thing that that kind of worked out for us was I I went to uh, Oxford University at Saïd Business School, did a program specifically for blockchain and then their fintech program. One of my professors, David Schreier, was the advisor to FINRA. So that kind of really worked out for for us really well. And he he was an advisor on digital assets and cryptocurrencies. So he already knew about our product and that kind of uh, helped us breeze through it and kind of guide them through the entire thing on how we're making it compliant and how we're trying to work with the regulators. And, you know, once the regulators knew that, you know, we're, we're truly not trying to avoid regulation. We're we're taking it head on, and we're saying, "Hey, this is the Let's regulation. We want to be compliant." That's mm-hmm. you know they, they've been more than generous to us, uh, to say the mm. least. So regulators are known to be a pain, and they're a necessary evil. Uh, the regulators are there to protect the common person and their interests. So in our case, in the financial industry, the regulators are there so that. Rupert Murdoch's don't happen again. Your pyramid schemes don't happen again. Your Ponzi schemes don't happen again. Every grandma doesn't lose her shirt or every, you know, yeah. uh, your last thousand dollars from your savings doesn't does not go down kind of deal. And that that is needed, in my opinion. And, and they're there for for protecting the common person's interest. So. Yeah.
0: So what kind of hurdles are they expecting you to overcome, I guess, over the next couple of years so then you can open it up to, you know, the average
2: Joe. Yeah, so our uh, plan is to open it up to the average Joe by next summer or at the latest by the end of 22, right? So in the next 18 months is what we want to do is open it up. We've got to demonstrate to the SEC and, and the other regulators a few different aspects of our platform, which include how the initial offerings happen, which we're already doing, how the secondary markets work, how the uh, transfers work, how is people's money safe. Then we're supposed to get our uh, a few other licenses from them. And as we get those licenses, there's some other things that they want to look at from our perspective, from compliance's perspective, and how, how we tackle all of that compliance. And then we, we would hopefully be getting Getting the exchange license, and that's what the agreed upon pathway is at this point. And once we get that exchange license and a few other approvals with it, we should be able to open it up to the average. A lot of this is uh, commercially sensitive information, therefore you hear it as very big <laughs> answer. But but just just the steps. There's like four different steps to it. So
1: wait, and you had mentioned earlier too that Ohio, which surprised me, was was more innovative in this token blockchain industry, so to speak, which surprised me, it's different from state to state when you're working with regulation?
2: So uh, Ohio is more forward thinking when it comes to blockchain as a technology, nothing to do with tokenization in general. Okay. Uh, yeah, it, it, more more so, blockchain as a technology being recognized as a legal form of ledger where you can record transactions, uh, and it would be considered uh, a legally recorded transaction kind of deal. Got, uh, it, got I, it, got it. I'm forgetting the uh, the exact uh, st- uh, SR that it was, but it, it was a 2019 law, that, and it was sometime in August, or sorry, 2018 August of 2018, uh, I believe when, when that law came out. But I'm I'm completely banking out on what exactly it was. But yes, Ohio is. One one of the more forward-thinking states by yeah. even enabling uh, certain things and, and and enabling the use and recognizing blockchain within government entities. is yes. it, It's a big, big, big positive compared to a lot of other states. But you will see how Wyoming is now allow, allowing for DAOs, decentralized organizations, uh, to be set up and, and have those Legally considered as LLCs with certain stipulations, if you have bad actors, the limited liability aspects of it can be stripped away. Other states will follow soon, and I'm, I'm confident Ohio would be one of the earlier adopters for it.
1: Mm, and where my train of thought is partly going, because I wanted to shift gears, you have traveled the world and you have obviously done business all over the world, and you're here in Ohio. I would love, on top of yes, the benefits of of what we've done at a state with blockchain. How, like, why Cincinnati? Why Ohio? <sighs> Let's dive into that a little bit more.
2: Ah, uh, that was uh, so. When I was in LA, I wanted to uh, expand in the Midwest, right? So the global real estate market is fairly mature compared to the American market. Uh, Mm -hmm. Debt is used globally to increase your buying power, not to increase your return on on your investment. So if you look at places like Toronto uh, as the closest examples, uh, even San Fran right now, from that perspective, or London, Hong Kong, any larger city, Seoul, anywhere across the world, you only borrow money so you can buy a larger asset not because you want to increase your returns from 6% annualized return to a 12% annualized mm-hmm. return the midwest is the uh, is is a crazy place where that's exactly what happens well m- majority of the us is uh, is a crazy place where where exactly that's what happens not it's not just the low interest rates that enable it and the high you know debt to uh, Loan to asset values, sorry. Uh, it, it's just the it's also the way that, that it's positioned. When we're investing in the Midwest, we're we're expecting a year on year return on these assets upwards of, you know, five, six, seven, eight percent in these mature markets, you're looking at negative returns on a yearly basis. You're, you're purely investing for that long-term growth uh, through capital gains. You're, you're investing because, you know, the asset's going to appreciate o- over a period of time. And it's not the cash flow that, that you're truly investing for. The cash flow is just stabilizing the asset and, and just barely keeping up the maintenance costs on those assets. So when, when looking at the M- Midwest from that perspective, you know, we start looking and analyzing at different economies within the Midwest uh, area you know we, we looked at tennessee we looked at ohio uh, not just cincinnati in ohio we also looked at columbus we looked at uh, missouri we looked at illinois but wh- one thing that we realized was that the economic backbone in cincinnati was a lot stronger than mm-hmm. st louis or columbus or nashville or you know a- or milwaukee for that matter and that's the reason why why we started investing in cincinnati b- back in 2010 2011 that's how we ended up choosing cincinnati and you know hindsight is 2020 so when when we were investing in cincinnati we had the option of investing in nashville and columbus and if we would have done that today we would have made more money in those two cities but our thesis still still stands. If there's a downturn in the real estate market today, Cincinnati will hold much stronger than Columbus and Nashville because of the strong economic backbone, because of the high growth in the city, because of the policies put in by the local politicians. It's unfortunate to see what's happened in City Hall over last year, but we've had some great develop like they've. The entire group has the pendulum been pendulum swings, though. Yeah. Yeah. So it, 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 they've they've been good with, with development, pro development and pro growth for the city. Be it Mayor Cranley uh, mm-hmm. in Cincinnati, you know, you know, be it the likes of your council members. There's there's some that you don't want, uh, yeah. uh, which are anti-growth, which are which are all about hey, let's put more and more taxes on on, on the people, on the companies. Yeah. But yeah, you know, what, what, what can we say?
0: What I guess. Further policies, or, you know, from a cultural perspective, can Cincinnatians, I guess, push for in order to continue, I guess, that growth and
2: innovation? Cincinnati is a growing city, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, why do people not want to move to Cincinnati is always the lifestyle changes so much. Like we just had someone move from Toronto to Cincinnati uh, mm-hmm. who, who works for the company and they're just not there. They're a downtown person and they're the big city. Life yeah. is just yeah. not just not there. But hey, you know, in the, during the COVID world, Toronto is completely dead compared to Cincinnati, so they're loving yeah. it right now. But no, it's it's the city needs to grow. Uh, the city needs to have uh, be on the right growth trajectory, and and there, it needs to be. Pre- pro-development. I, I think, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to make a political statement in any way or form. I think the happenings of last year were unfortunate on the city council side, more unfortunate for the city by losing those uh, pro-development councillors. If they've done something wrong, they should be penalized for it. But you know if some, some of them have not done anything wrong, they should not you know, these should not be politically mandated uh, or warranted charges go, going against them. And, and we'll find out in the next couple of years what, what happens. But it would be interesting to see how the city grows. You know there's, there's a mayoral campaign that's happening, election that's, that's in the works uh, that's going to have a major impact on what the policies of the city remain and how we treat growth and how we treat uplifting the city from that perspective.
1: If you could have an ideal vision of growth for this city, what would it be?
2: Ideal vision for growth for this city? Hopefully we'd have a better infrastructure and transportation plan. Our public transportation is is no good. Yeah. Would, uh, that's, would
1: you say that sticks with vehicles or is this as an automotive and cars or other methods of transportation?
2: No, like we need to have a, some form of mass transit. You know, Cincinnati as a queen city, was one of the earliest cities to have a metro system connecting what used to be... Underground tunnels. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) What used to be the high-income group area in Clifton and that Ludlow area to the downtown area to, what is it, the Anderson, the east side of town area, yeah, yeah, which is all where where the coal miners used to be, and and then the west side of the town as well, so where all the shipping was happening. And and now our, our transportation infrastructure is down to... Buses, buses and a non functional streetcar system. Like, I love the streetcars. Don't get it's me wrong. It's streetcar
1: to nowhere. Yeah, it's a streetcar to <laughs> <in> nowhere. That's <laughs> nowhere exactly what the that. problem
2: is. It's just one loop. It's like, if you <laughs> live in OTR, it'll work
1: out for you. Uh, to Even get then, to you Riverside. can walk faster than the streetcar. <laughs> <laughs> <Right?
2: laughs> but, but, you know, again, I, I think mass transit is key. I think mm-hmm. the intention behind that was right. It just needs to expand. Uh, and all of that takes, takes a lot of dollars for sure. I think we need to have. Uh, pro-development perspective, from a business perspective, downtown, uh, post-COVID, it's going to be difficult to see people back in their businesses and seeing how all of that's happening. And the city's trying hard from that perspective.
0: What can founders be, you know, pushing for? You know, especially you, you as a founder in Cincinnati, you've obviously overcome other hurdles that, you know, that aren't experienced in, you know, New York or, you know, LA. What should, you know, founders be really pushing
2: for? founders are always in a unique position, right? We're always at the forefront and, uh, of new technology, of innovation. And we're, we're always at a position where we can leverage what we have to improve or to better our circumstances around us. And that, that might sound too vague, but uh, the, we should never undervalue what we have. And we should always try to get the right support for it we're very lucky in cincinnati to have organizations like generator mm-hmm. you know gbeta uh, program running uh, running we we're very lucky to have organizations like centrifuge uh supporting the the startup ecosystem and we're very lucky to have an active vc uh, and uh, a, a, a venture scene within a 50 mile radius of cincinnati as well right so we've got mm-hmm. qca we've got uh, a loss ventures we've, uh, we've got cincinnati Tech, uh, and a whole bunch bunch of others Know what your value is, is what's most important. We need to have a more kind of mature uh, venture capital environment in Cincinnati. Unfortunately, my problem from day one uh, has been that not that Midwestern companies get undervalued, they get undervalued because Midwestern uh, venture capitalists undervalue these assets.
1: And why do you think that is too?
2: Their thought process is because you're based out of the Midwest and, and this is purely from my experience and it could be wrong. But what I've seen is their thought process is because you're based out of the Midwest, your cost of living is lower. Therefore, you should have a lower valuation. That's not how it works. Uh, You know, (laughs) uh, exactly. So we are because we're based out of the Midwest, doesn't mean that our team is uh, in the Midwest. Doesn't mean our operations are in the Midwest. We are, uh, we've got offices in three different countries. We're opening up our fourth office in Miami in the next uh, 30 days. So, you know, we're, constantly expanding. Our team is across the U.S. Cost of living in, you know, having that as a factor just because you are headquartered out of Cincinnati should not be something that impacts the valuation of it. Uh, And- the unfortunate thing is, founders have to give in to it at a certain point in time. You know, they have to give in to those lower valuations because they need the capital and they need the access to that capital. All your larger venture uh, venture funds over here can only think of, you know, hey, this is how we would do the due diligence on it, or the, hey, this is how we would do it. People don't understand a lot of times, or or even if they do, they don't want to implement it from that perspective. That at a seed stage, the founders are not vested enough in the company. If you're taking more than 20% of the company away from the founding team and the founders, they're never going to have enough interest by the end of it in the company where they'd be motivated enough to run the company to something big. And, and that's that's kind of what where, where, uh, where it becomes a problem. So finders gotta stay strong on, on what they're doing. And uh, there's a lot of opportunity out there. There's a lot of organizations locally that would help you out. There's a lot of great resources. We're very lucky in Cincinnati to have large corporations like PNG, AK Steel, um, Western Southern Ampham, like we've got a massive number of Fortune 500 and Fortune 1000 companies within a 20-mile radius of downtown Cincinnati, right? So that means we've got a lot of resources available to us at a very low cost compared to some of the larger cities. So we can so we best utilize, utilize them. Yeah. So it's, it's, we've, we've got to best utilize them and we can completely expand on growing this ecosystem, this growing ecosystem within Cincinnati as well.
0: Do you think Cincinnati can become that fintech or real estate prop tech hub?
1: Uh, yeah, be
2: honest. yeah, that's a that's a tough question. No. So I love Cincinnati. Cincinnati's home for me, right? It's it's not a home where I was born. It's not a home where I where I migrated to. It's a home that I picked. It's a home that my family picked for ourselves, right? So we're, we're me and my wife are growing two kids over here. Our initial idea was moving to Cincinnati for a couple of years and that's it.
1: That's literally the epitome of our city.
2: Yeah. So seven years later, you know, this is home for us. <laughs> we love it. Yeah, that's yeah. exactly it. You guys reeled us in. And you're real like, and you never going anywhere. <laughs> and if you leave, yeah. you
1: come back.
2: <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you yeah, know, it's, uh, uh, I, I, th- I think Cincinnati has that that whole culture and, and uh, where the city makes you love it, makes you fall, for, uh, fall in love with it. Does it make enough fintech, enough prop tech fall in love with the city? I, I, I don't know, I, I, time will tell. Yeah. The regulations need, need, need to be improved from that perspective. Again, our VC ecosystem needs to get a tad bit uh, stronger. But again, we have some of the best resources available with entities like Centrifuge being based out of Cincinnati. Massive help, massive support. They've been a great source of support for us, uh, helping us grow. Every person there is is always supportive, helpful. If you if you're working on a good product, they will help you out and they, they will move forward with you. So that's how I got introduced in this in the Cincinnati ecosystem. I did not know a single cincinnati startup ecosystem person while we were working on this product we didn't even reach out to local vcs or reach out to the local startup ecosystem because we were not hiring locally we were you know since we were just so specialized you don't have the resources uh, or we didn't have the resources then but now they're, they're slowly developing for sure
1: so as a founder and an entrepreneur and someone who has had a wealth of knowledge in real estate What is the advice that you would give yourself if you could go back and look at the start of this journey that you didn't know?
2: Uh, Stay strong. Don't give up. You have to be persistent. You know, there, there were times when I was tired of the whole journey and I was frustrated without getting success, without, you know, getting the right answers from the attorneys, from the regulators, from the venture capitalists, from raising money. You know, it's not... An easy journey, you have to remain persistent. We recently got an investment by Tim Draper's uh, Venture Blockchain Venture Studio, Draper Gordon Home, which has been an absolute delight for us. Uh, but it took us a year to cultivate that relationship and get that uh, investment in. So you've got to be persistent, you've got to be patient, and you've got to stay at it. And that's the advice that I would give myself so I don't get frustrated as I did through the journey.
0: Believe in your why. I think it's a great note to end on. Thank you, man.
2: Thank you. Thank you, guys. This has been an absolute pleasure. I look forward to chatting out with, uh, with you yeah. guys again, for sure. But thank you so much for having me. Wow.
0: I learned, learned a such lot. Such <laughs> so. And what they're working on is really cool. And I never thought Cincinnati could be kind of that, yeah. like, leader. And it sounds like, from his perspective, it is. Yes, we have work to do. Uh, mm-hmm. But you know it sounds work to do <laughs> but it sounds like we're at least kind of starting off on the right path
1: you know the overarching message for me and i think there were a lot of takeaways number 1 just learning the foundation of real estate in a blockchain matter mm. is definitely the future of spreading generational wealth in my mind and i wanted to follow that in the future. But what you just said, too, of Cincinnati and Ohio really sparked my attention heavily, Mm -hmm. that we are one of the first initiators to start to bring out more of that blockchain network and regulation. And that really surprised me. I was not expecting him to say that.
0: Like you said, it rebuilds generational wealth, but it also can Mm -hmm. democratize many industries, Mm -hmm. not only real estate to help build generational wealth, but who knows, Healthcare. care, uh, it could further democ- democratize democracy and voting and elections. Who knows? There's so many uh, potentials there.
1: I, I love it. It actually gets me excited because I think this is especially over the last year or two, what we're all talking about with affordable housing, opening mm. up opportunity for everyone of all ethnicities of all colors and mm. building generational wealth. Beyond what has been built right now and kind of equalizing the playing field mm-hmm. a little bit. And technology and opportunities like this will open that up because if you can invest $1,000 into a piece of property and start there, mm-hmm. that, at least that's something.
2: Mm-hmm. That's
1: something rather than having to put down $500,000 on your on a single space and then go from there, you know?
0: Yeah. And I think, you know, towards the end, we were talking about what, you know, makes Cincinnati special and Mm
1: -hmm. what
0: founders can be doing here in the city. And it sounds just like to sum it all up, you know, give back, get involved and open it up for others.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Be proactive. I'll be curious to see how he continues to operate with developers. I wonder Mm -hmm. if there's going to be future growth more with developers with that. Because if this is going to be a shift in the future in real estate, how is he going to have a hand?
0: Well, maybe we could get him connected with Chris Fretkin which episode five. Oh, five. We, should, we should do that. We should get them connected. Yes, and go
1: back and listen if you haven't already listened. <laughs> and if you have a segment idea or someone that you think we should talk to, you should reach out to us. We really want to hear from you and continue to engage in this conversation.
0: You can reach out to us at hosts. At whenpigsfly.fm, Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram. So, all the you things. Name it. <laughs> Find
1: us directly, whatever that might be. <laughs>
0: also, please give us a rating uh, and review on Apple Podcasts.
1: Shameless plug. Like, subscribe, <laughs> review. Like us, please.
0: <laughs> because we like you. Yes. Thank you uh, for tuning in and hopefully you learned something like we did.
1: I think it's time.
0: It's time. To- Cheers.
1: And here's some necessary legal stuff. Allie Martin and Patrick Bailey developed the When Pigs Fly podcast in collaboration with the Up Company LLC. At the time of this recording, we do not own equity or any financial interest in the companies which appear on the show unless otherwise indicated. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinion and do not reflect the opinions of the E.W. Scripps Company and its affiliates or Generator Management LLC and its affiliates or any entity which employs us. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. We have not considered your specific financial situation nor provided any investment or legal advice on the show. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next week. We also want to give a shout out to Claire and Christian of Moonbow. They're the two artists of our intro song, which is so catchy and gets stuck in our heads all the time. So bop over to Spotify or wherever you find your music and give them a listen. And Like the Night by Moonbo is courtesy of Silver Lake Sync.